Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Wednesday, September the 16th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Yesterday in Dublin Castle, the government launched its new Living with COVID strategy, which sets five levels of measures of restrictions with level one as the least stringent and level five as the most severe. And I think it's fair to say that the launch did not go as smoothly as the government might have hoped. Uh, So to discuss that, along with the measures themselves and what they're going to mean for life in Ireland over the next few months, I am joined by our political correspondent Harry McGee, by opinion columnist and features writer Una Mullally, and by health editor Paul Cullen. Now, Harry, I'm going to go to you first because the reviews are in for yesterday's presentation and they're not good. They're not. They're they're dismal. I think... uh... Tomatoes were flung at the political stage from the moment the three senior members of government began to speak. And it was obvious even before the plan was drafted that they had a problem, Houston. And the problem was this. I think when they were drafting the plan, the assumption was that all of the country would be relatively uniform in terms of the COVID outbreak. You'd have spikes here and there, but there wouldn't be a, a distinctive difference between any region. But in the past couple of weeks, uh, as we have seen, there has been a massive uh, divergence, not a massive one, but a very marked divergence uh, between Dublin and the rest of the country. It's not all that massive, because if you look back uh, uh, historically at the figures since March, you'll see that Dublin has always accounted for at least half of the outbreaks, which isn't surprising, given that it's a big conurbation and uh, almost uh, half, well, between a third and half of the population live in the city and its uh, surrounding uh, hinterland. But uh, as they were looking at the figures in the past couple of weeks, the trajectory for for Dublin was rising sharply, uh, almost at a vertical uh, direction, uh, whereas other parts of the country, notably the western seaboard from Cork right up to Sligo, uh, the figures per 100,000 were really low, uh, sometimes in single digits, sometimes in the teens. So as the situation progressed last week, uh, the figures in Dublin uh, continued to progress up to 60 per 100,000 over two weeks, 70 up to 80. And now uh, it's tipping 100 cases uh, per 100,000 population on a two week uh, time window. And that's a problem. So uh, it was known that the plan was going to move from a temporal plan uh, to a plan uh, which was a little bit like a, a, a hurricane or a weather, storm weather warning, uh, where there would be different levels uh, for different levels of severity. And uh, from the start, they decided that they were going to do a five-point plan. And um, it became obvious that most of the country, because of the uptick since uh, July, August, would be at around level two. And the big difficulty politically for the government was where to place Dublin. And they had, they're walking a tightrope all the time. They're looking at trying to protect public health uh, while not allowing the economy uh, go completely under. And if you let the economy go completely under, you create a whole new set of problems. And those problems uh, also creep into public health. So by curing one ailment, 
uh, perhaps you are creating another element. And it's a very difficult and complex uh, balancing act that one must uh, achieve. So they weren't trying, what they were trying to do was trying to keep Dublin as open as possible uh, while making sure that public health was protected. But uh, to be technical about it, they made a complete and utter Hames uh, of it, Hugh. Uh, they decided that Dublin would remain at level two. And I think just from a semiotic, from a signal point of view, that was a mistake because everybody knew that Dublin was markedly different. Dublin was going in the wrong direction. Uh, the problem in Dublin was serious. It might not have reached a critical phase yet, but as we have seen with this virus before, uh, you can move from a relatively benign scenario to a very serious scenario uh, within a very short period of time. So they decided that Dublin would be at level two and then there'd be a couple of uh, extra restrictions, some of which made n- not too much sense. I mean, the, the pub closures in Dublin, the, the pub isn't the place where the virus is, uh, uh, is escalating and hasn't been since March because they've been closed. So that really made not too much sense. Uh, there were more restrictions on households, which were almost, you know, they, they didn't really push the boat out too much further. And then a third restriction in relation to crowds at football games. And that really isn't going to go to the heart of the problem either. Uh, I think politically, what would have been better for them to do was to have a look at all the levels. Uh, between level one and level two, there wasn't a huge big leap. Uh, between level two and level three, it, there is a very, very steep uh, increase in terms of the restrictions. And perhaps they could have mollified that a little bit and then made a bigger gap between level three and level four, uh, put Dublin onto level three, and then modified it uh, by maybe removing some of the restrictions uh, pertaining to travel. For example, in level three, you're, you're encouraged not to travel outside your own county bounds. Perhaps they could have taken that and a few more. But at least it would have given the public uh, some signal that this was a very clear uh, uh, um, uh, plan and that when uh, some place was markedly different from another place, it would be assigned a different level. And then there was also problems after that in communications. And then Stephen Donnelly got sick and then the doll was adjourned. And suddenly uh, we were into uh, uh, Fawcett's circus territory. <laughs> Indeed we were. And actually, before we get into some of the detail and the questions of the merits or demerits of some of the system with, with, with Paul Luna, I want to ask you about that because it's not just about um, reviewing the theatrical presentation, you know, messaging, clarity of language um, are are key uh, to this. And yesterday was an example, it seems to me, in how not to do it from beginning with a pretty turgid um, presentation in Dublin Castle, first of all, which which really wasn't particularly well done and looked as if it had been a horse designed by a committee. Then confused and contradictory media interviews by different members of the government about what the situation was for Dublin, followed then by, as uh, as Harry says, the bizarre nature of um, Stephen Donnelly, the health minister, going for a COVID test and the doll being shut down. Uh, I'm a little unclear as to why that was. Um, the whole thing was a omni-shambles. Yeah, I mean, I think there's two interesting kind of aspects on the front pages of two newspapers today. One is the front of the star, which, um, as Harry alluded to, the circus analogy And the other is the front of the Irish Times, which had the graphic around explaining the levels by Paul Scott, which on Wednesday morning, Fianna Fáil ripped off and posted to their own social media. So if the government themselves can't actually articulate what they mean, that's not just a communications issue, although it is an acute communications and messaging issue. You can only communicate what you're actually doing. And there does seem to be an aura of incompetence and confusion and 
like Harry was saying, you know, what is the point in having levels if you're then kind of either on the stole with a lot of them? Um, if you have a level 2.5 for Dublin and additional restrictions. Now, because I think people are so stressed out with this kind of messaging and because people are really struggling and are confused by it, there can tend to be this like pile on of like, oh, here's more confusing stuff. When you dig down into the levels, they're not that difficult to understand. But I do think that, you know, you really have to articulate to people what's going on at this moment because there is a sense that people are kind of cracking up at this point and are really stressed out and is there, if there is a semblance that the people in charge don't actually have a handle on it and aren't kind of calmly clearly properly articulating what's going on you know that continues to crumble more and I think at this stage you know we can talk about the latest cock up of which there seems to be one happening almost every 12 hours but the fundamental of it is the sense that there isn't really a clear handle on how to progress and that plans are kind of cobbled together. And when they're articulated, they're articulated very poorly. Um, you know, even this morning I was talking to a friend who was getting on to me saying, oh, well, we, you know, pl- like play Frisbee in the park this weekend. And I was like, well, we actually can't have more than, you know, six people from two households to do that outdoors. And they're saying, oh, really? You know, these are, you know, people are are smart and, they, and they're trying to stay on top of things. But that messaging isn't getting through and then you do risk people either not adhering to restrictions out of a lack of knowledge or confusion or people just checking out of, uh, you know, the latest kind of shambolic um, delivery of messaging on, on this or people just kind of almost, you know, becoming almost in opposition to just the way the messaging is delivered. So, It's kind of worrying, um, I guess, because we are able seemingly to handle this crisis uh, on a on a public obedience level, on a social cohesion level. We don't seem to be able to handle it on the public health level with regard to the capacity in the health system, in the hospitals. And we're certainly not handling it well on a political level. So I suppose in some ways the government is very, very lucky that people are on board to a certain degree, that there is a lot of compliance because if that begins to crack and if that isn't there, that's really the main thing that's holding everything up right now, I think. Paul, I wonder, are we shooting the messenger to some extent? This is a complex situation, demands it's it's fluid, um, it re- requires a certain kind of fluidity in, in government and, and medical response as well. But actually, before you, before you answer that question, can I just ask you about what happened with Stephen Donnelly yesterday when it was announced he was going for a test? Then ministers um, were told, some of them while they were live on air doing radio interviews, that they were going to be required to self-isolate until that test came back. And then um, the uh, the doll was suspended as a result of that. I'm not quite quite sure why. That, did, to me, didn't send a great message to all the people who are confronting situations of that sort. And we'll confront situations of that sort over the next six months in schools and workplaces and everywhere else. Yeah, I mean, it isn't easy. Um, the regulations are not simple. They've grown up over time. Um, they've been updated and changed. And as we saw during the Phil Hogan controversy, um, the guidance can be confusing uh, at best. Um, when I saw this unfold last night, I was going for my uh, phone and looking up the HSC website just to check. You remember Shauna Farrell, who made the announcement yesterday, said that the cabinet had gone into self-isolation. 
that was incorrect. Uh, they were actually restricting their movements. And I've done both, and I know there's a big difference. Uh, if you're restricting your movements, you can get out and about a little bit. Uh, if you're self-isolating, you're basically housebound, um, and that's a big difference. So um, I suppose, you know, that's just a fact. That's just the way things have gone, and things could be simplified. But it, it just it did show... Um, you know, the extent to which uh, people are confused and if they're not clear on what they're supposed to do, they're more likely to set it to one side, the rules, and uh, decide that to go ahead with that Frisbee match or to make that trip outside Dublin. If it's just not clear and if they can't compute the number of households and the, the arithmetic, which is becoming ever more complex for uh, people coming into your house, um, I can see that, um, that they will put it to one side. That's something that we can work on. I mean, to be fair to the government, um, when you set aside the theatre from yesterday, when you set aside the imminent issues around Dublin and the fudging around that, I mean, the plan is a good thing. It was needed. Um, it's realistic. It starts balancing public health um, requirements against other requirements such as mental health and uh, other health issues and the economy and the social good of society and quality of life. And I think that's good. It has a wider focus. Um, and I suppose it recasts that relationship between NEFET, the public health uh, doctors, and the rest of the public service. And I think that's kind of good. So perhaps some of that good work will, will, will survive uh, when the controversy dies down, if it ever dies down. And of course, it gives us a six or nine month plan um, for hopefully um, coming to terms. And it's based on a, reali on a realistic acceptance that we're, we're going to have to live with this virus, right? not that we're going to eliminate it or that it's going to go away um, or that there's going to be a miracle cure or vaccine around, right around the corner. Uh, I think it's realistic to say for six or nine months, this is what we're in and this is the plan that we can follow. And as uh, Una said, when you get down to it, the levels are not that hard to understand. Yeah, indeed. Um, Harry, Paul referred to something there, which is this the setting up of a new committee structure, I suppose, whereas up to now we've had NFET advising the government or giving the government its best advice from a medical perspective on what it thinks should be done. And the government then, you know, debating that and taking on board some of the recommendations and not taking on board other recommendations. And that can set up a certain kind of a, a difficult dialectic, I suppose, from a political point of view, because it's seen that these political decisions are being made not to accept medical advice. So it's understandable that they've set up what they call now the COVID-19 oversight group, which is really um, uh, public servants in committee uh, taking Anfit's advice and then plugging that into the various other concerns, the economic and social concerns, before making recommendations to the government. That, to me, seems to kind of make kind of sense, although some people might see it as just politicians covering their asses. Uh, yeah, allowing politicians to make non-decisions. <laughs> um, I can understand why it's been done and I understand the rationale uh, behind it. Uh, I think, for example, if we go back 10 years to when the Troika came in, the Troika would draw up these um, memorandums of understanding uh, with uh, a word that I haven't heard for a long time in Irish politics with conditionalities uh, attached. And these were the very uh, yucky things the government had to do in order to try to harness public finances and big, bring public finances back into uh, uh, order. And there was no filter, you know, the, the, the Troika said, do this. And the government had no choice uh, but to do what it was being told because the Troika was correcting its homework, essentially. Uh, and a lot of the decisions they were making uh, were unpalatable. 
And um, I remember talking to a uh, member uh, of of the uh, European Commission who was one of the, the three people involved. They're saying, well, we're essentially what we're doing is we're giving the Irish political system cover. You know, uh, we're we're implementing really tough decisions that are not very nice. But what the politicians can and should do is they can say, well, the decisions are terrible, but we have no choice because we're being absolutely forced to do this. But it kind of gave them a filtering system. And the filtering system system in this instance is that the the medical advice sometimes runs a a little bit uh, counter uh, to uh, what is palatable uh, publicly. And I think the medical experts themselves would, for example, say that they have little knowledge of sport or of culture, of the arts and the impact a kind of a broad, blunt decision uh, would have on all those sectors. So essentially what's going to happen is that there's going to be a committee uh, that's chaired by uh, Martin Fraser, who's the most senior civil servant in the country. He's the Secretary General of, of Government. Uh, it's going to have officials uh, from all the relevant government departments and also the chief medical officer or the acting chief medical officer to, to create that kind of nexus uh, between uh, NEFID and this oversight committee. And they will look at the data. Uh, they will look at the recommendations that have been made by NEFID. And then they will try to look at politically kind of astute or palatable ways of of executing them. And then their recommendations will be made uh, to to Cabinet. And then Cabinet can decide to take on those recommendations or or modify them uh, as it sees uh, fit. But I think in most instances, it will probably take on all of those recommendations. So I think there was a a slight difficulty. I think when when the old government was in power, I think Neffet would would parlay uh, with, with senior ministers and they'd work through it and they would come up with a, a, a solution that was agreeable to all. I think since the three-party coalition came into government, I think the, the recommendation would come from NEFID and it would be quickly uh, transformed into actual action. And sometimes the political consequences of that uh, would be uh, negative or wouldn't achieve the desired uh, effect. So I, I think it'll probably work. But I also fear that, um, you know, politicians always look for the point of least resistance and they hate doing uh, things that aren't crowd pleasers. So I think that in some instances, I think we will see some uh, recommendations that should be implemented. Uh, We might see them diluted uh, slightly, but maybe I'm putting the cart before the horse slightly there. We haven't, it hasn't got into action yet. And it's only when it actually begins to operate uh, that we'll know whether that's happening or not. Yeah, I do wonder. I mean, there, Una, there is an argument for better sanity checking. I know something that you've written about. In fact, I've written about it as well a bit. Is some of the the impacts of some of the restrictions on 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 cultural activities. There was a kind of an absurd situation when uh, some restrictions were introduced a few weeks back, where uh, theatre companies uh, discovered that they'd be allowed to have fifty people attend their uh, attend their performance indoors, but they'd only be allowed to have a fraction of that outdoors, which goes against everything that we now know about COVID nineteen. And that was because a blanket imposition had been placed, which, which just didn't make sense in that regard. So there is something to be said for being a bit more sophistication and having the Department of Arts, Culture, Sport and nearly everything else affected by COVID involved in a more directed way. Yeah, that's true. But I do think that the logic battle had had been lost already um, with regards to these kind of illogical you know, restrictions like you mentioned, the theatre thing of 50 people indoors, 15 outdoors. The idea that a music venue as big as the three arena um, could only have six people in it, which is the same amount of people that you could have for dinner in your house. Um, Those kind of 
poorly thought out, uh, you know, blunt instruments with regards to gatherings, let's say, uh, I know that they you kind of want to get the information out quickly. But when people don't see logic or um, a rule rooted in cop on, they're far less likely to adhere to it. Uh, you know, this comes back again and again and again and again to the nine euro meal thing. You know, that was really the break in, um, I guess, public a kind of agreement or, or just a, a, that kind of level of of sense and logic. Um, and, you know, that's still coming back. People are still talking about it um, because it obviously is illogical. It's just about having people sit down and have table service. And you have, you know, then weeks of, of media debate about uh, why it doesn't make any sense. As long as government continues to to impose restrictions that don't actually make sense to people who understand the fundamentals of the guidelines, which we all know, distancing, hand hygiene, masks, all that crack, there will be a difficulty when, uh, you know, yet another press conference happens that is poorly communicated or yet another uh, bunch of like level 2.5 comes in that that doesn't really make sense, that confuses people. So I think that logic battle was really lost a good while ago. And I think that it's kind of hanging by a thread. But Una, isn't that partly just because people just get pissed off? I mean, we talked very at the outset of this, there was a lot of talk about fatigue um, and people are fatigued and they're pissed off and they're bored with having their lives constrained. And some of them, particularly if they're younger, may feel that it doesn't pose a direct threat to them. So, you know, we're in a different space anyway. It's not just about um, the message not being as, as clear as it might be. And the message itself has to be more complex. Yeah, it's absolutely to do with people getting pissed off. You know, we're kind of in the teenage phase of this where the country feels like it's being, you know, grounded without reason over and over again. Now, that might seem a bit annoying and that people themselves should just, you know, have resolve and and pursue the way they should be. But we know that uh, social cohesion and bringing people along with the messaging and the behavioural science aspect of this is massive. And if you're not getting that right, yes, okay, you can just kind of give out to people for you know, really going off on one on Twitter or whatever and that people should really just knuckle down and get with it. But we do know that you have to actually communicate things properly and and, and bring people along with you. The government hasn't really been doing that um, and, and the reasons why are more worrying than, let's say, you know, the Kian Corla accidentally saying that, you know, the doll needs to be, you know, uh, paused, I suppose, you know, and making these kind of decisions that that aren't even in guidelines or aren't even in protocol or whatever. I, I do think that um, we are getting to a stage where that trust part is has been eroded. I think that people will take it upon themselves to be responsible. You know, I think there is, you know, most people are complying. But I just think the fundamental of that logic battle has been lost a, a long time ago. And the government is really lucky that we have the type of social cohesion that we have and that people are generally fearful and obedient, you know, culturally, that they'll kind of go along with it um, off their own bat rather than out of some kind of real adherence to great messaging, great communications. I don't understand why the comms has been so bad from government. You know, any kind of two-bit marketing agency yesterday could have put out something that was much more coherent. There doesn't seem to be a great 
cut through in terms of messaging to young people, to kind of people in their late teens or early 20s. You know, you don't really see um, any very, very widespread useful campaigns on social media through influencers or things like that. Um, You know, people in their late teens and early 20s, of which, you know, the rate of infection has gone up are not necessarily listening to Drive Time or picking or buying the Irish Times. And there doesn't seem to be, you know, a suite of messages that are getting through to that cohort. And we're, when we look at the figures uh, and we look at kind of, you know, what you might call a heat map of, of the spread, uh, you know, what was uh, prophesized has come through. The rate uh, rises amongst people in that younger cohort. And a couple of weeks later, older people get sick who are more vulnerable. Yeah, Paul. Pascal Donoghue was on the radio this morning on RTE and he said it was, um, I think he said it was likely was the word he used that, that Dublin might move to, phase, would move to phase three. How serious are things in Dublin? Yeah, I, I wrote that myself actually this morning, so I was pleased to see him say that. <laughs> Phew. Um, they took our graphs, they took your article, you know. Uh, they t- they're taking their ideas. Um, they took our political correspondent as well, if I remember correctly. <laughs> um, listen, um uh, they're fairly serious. They're nowhere near as serious as in, as in the spring. We've heard the, the most extreme uh, prognostications, you know, that we could have 5,000 cases uh, by the end of the month and so on. Um, that's just modelling. Um, that's not going to happen. It didn't happen before. It's not going to happen again because um, the government uh, changes restrictions and people modify behaviour uh, and for reasons like that. Um uh, what worries me is, that, um, and I, I, you know, I, I, I spoke to the merits of the plan earlier, but what really worries me about is the timing of this plan. I mean, this plan should have come out months ago. And if it had come out at a period of low transmission, uh, it would have been much plainer sailing for the government and they wouldn't have had this issue around Dublin. Um, uh, what worries me is that the opportunity was lost in the summer. And I can understand why. There was a change of government uh, I'm sure there was exhaustion on all sides in the health service and among public health doctors, change of personnel, um, people finding um, their, their their feet in, in new positions and uh, their eye was taken off the ball. I, I, I think the, the, the figures just point to that. Um, so uh, instead of talking about, in, as in they do in the plan about ramping up the testing system and getting permanent staff in and so on, it should have been done already. It shouldn't be just happening now. Um, uh, instead of talking about uh, improving our critical care bed facility, which we need anyway, uh, that should have been. I don't, I don't have any great assurance that the number of critical care beds in the system for both COVID and non-COVID patients ha- has increased hugely. There, there is temporary stuff there and so on. So um, so timing is one thing. So then Dublin, um, I looked at a few other cities, you know, obviously Dublin is not a mega city, you know, but um, there are some interesting um uh, trends in other cities. Uh, if you look at uh, Spain, obviously is the worst uh, prevalence in Europe at the moment, and Madrid is a hotspot in Spain. And if you look at the curve there, so they went from their initial surge, they beat that, they got a very strict lockdown down to nothing, and now it's gone back up. Uh, totally U-shaped curve. We don't want that, obviously. If you look at New York, which had a devastating uh, first surge of the virus as well. Uh, the curve has just gone downwards and has stayed downwards so far. So what have they done? Apparently what they've done is they have a really, really efficient track and trace system or um, uh, testing, uh, tra- tracking down people, checking uh, on quarantine and so on. Very proactive. Um, it's hard to express that in sentence in some way. It's just about, it's more like a, a football situation about where you're pressing all the time rather than holding back as a football team. Um, and I think that's what's what's lacking 
here. There is some sign. I think our volume of testing is pretty good, to be honest with you. Um, I certainly hope everybody gets tested as fast uh, and gets their results as fast as Stephen Donnelly did, um, which is of almost miraculous. Um, but there is some uh, indication that perhaps the, the, there are some improvements there, but they're more needed. Um, so we get our act together there. Um, if people too play their role, and, 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 and I, the point's been made by doctors to me as well, is one thing is that people, they, they observe symptoms in themselves or in their family members and they wait and see, and, uh, and they're being told, don't do that because that wastes valuable time. So we have a responsibility too. And then, as Una said, it goes back to the basics. We know them, you know, hand hygiene, distancing and so on, and reducing your level of contacts. I don't regard it as, it, I suppose maybe it's my stage of life, I don't regard it as a great infringement on, on my enjoyment of life to have to reduce contacts for a while. But obviously that's different for younger people and different approaches and different messaging is needed there because um, I'm struck every time I go to a briefing in the Department of Health and, and, and hear the, the stern message delivered by the officials there. And then I cycle up the canal and I see large bunches of people for, for whom, you know, that's an alternative universe. They're not listening to those messages that we're, we're, we're pumping out in the Irish Times or that uh, is appearing on the main um, evening news. So further rethinks are needed there. Is there a danger, Paul, with, with track and trace that I'm looking across the water at the UK, I think they went back to school a couple of weeks before we went back to school. And alongside the return to school and perhaps other things, there's been a huge increase in demand for um, for testing, you know, and we can anticipate that that'll be the case here as cold season and then flu season arises, that the testing system will just collapse. That seems to be what's happening in the UK where people are being told to travel several hundred miles in order to get a test. Yeah, they're under they're under serious pressure there, um, and we have been. So uh, that is a possibility. I think I, I suppose that you have to add the rider that testing isn't everything. If people have symptoms, their job is to isolate for two weeks, and for most that will do the trick. But we also have to watch, and in many ways, it's more important uh, the trends on hospitalizations and deaths. And as we know, they're much better than they were in the spring. It seems to be accepted as a near inevitability. Uh, that the virus will leak from the younger populations who are getting infected at the moment into older and more vulnerable populations. And of course, to some extent, that's true. I don't accept it as an inevitability uh, that we would have another massive wave in nursing homes, for example. And I, I, I say that because we know how the virus works and we know how it's uh, transmitted. And surely this new system and these new committees can come up with solutions in different sectors to absolutely reduce that to a minimum. So in the nursing home sector, for example, that means that obviously the locus of transmission is often staff. So, you know, are we checking staff enough? Are we looking after their, their housing arrangements? Are we ensuring that they're not working across different uh, locales? Are we even incentivizing them to go for tests if there is a, something holding them back from doing that? Sick pay arrangements and so on. So there, you know, when you drill down, there are all these kind of solutions that can improve uh, our, our, our performance in these different areas. If we do that across the, the, the uh, broad spectrum of society, I'm kind of confident that we will rein this in and, and, and be able to get back to where we were before. Harry, I want to return a little bit to the politics of this. Um, Una referred to the fairly low-grade messaging 
um, which went on over the last while. Paul referred to the fact that this is a this is something that should have been launched several weeks ago at least. So it was it's been very slow coming. It has come now, but those kind of criticisms of the government and the way in which it's delivering still apply. Conor Lenehan, former Fianna Fáil junior minister, not not averse to poking a stick in a wasp's nest from time to time, points to the fact that there's 70 advisors or something to the various ministers and junior ministers in the government at the moment. I think his general point is there's a there's an incoherence there. Um, and now as we get into the next chapter of this government, which I suppose is the run-up to the budget, I mean, is there any chance that they'll gel in a way that they've clearly failed to do so far? Well, they're going to have to gel or else we're going to be uh, in a, an awful lot of difficulty because we are facing a, a, an Everest of a, a problem in terms of the economics over the next uh, year. So, I mean, the government is going to have to swim rather than sink and they're going to have to learn how to uh, perfect the art of synchronised swimming and they haven't done it so far. Uh, it's been very poor. Just in terms of the insipid presentation yesterday, I was struck between the contrast between Michal Martin's presentation, which was turgid, I think Una's phrase, and uh, Leo Varadkar's. Leo Varadkar's was much more clever, much more on point, very Dublin-focused, very Dublin-oriented. And um, I, I think that the two new um, parties in government have both been struggling uh, to come up to the pace. I think Fine Gael has been uh, a little bit more uh, silken, uh, a bit more self-assured uh, since the government was formed. That, that's another debate uh, for uh, another day. Fine Gael has been quite good at getting its messaging across. The other parties have been poor at getting their messaging across. And then as a consequence, the government as a whole has been um, P-I-S-S-P-O-O-R at getting its message across as well uh, to date. Um, Just in relation to, uh, I thought Una's point in relation to messaging was right on point. I think there's a big plan and there are big messages but then you have, uh, you need to have niche messages, smaller messages aimed at different cohorts. Um, I'm not um, uh, familiar with uh, the world of TikTok and social media for teenagers. But if the government isn't, isn't on the case uh, across those media, it should be. And it should be doing it with influencers, as, as Una said, and with others to bring that message home. I cycle along the canal every day like Paul and uh, see the hordes of young um, people congregating along the banks of the canal. And it strikes me that when it comes down to a battle between hormones versus virus, I think hormones are going to win every single time. I mean, it's a difficulty. It's a very, it's a very difficult thing telling young people you have to stay uh, apart, you know, for the next six months or for uh, a year. And I mean, in, in the reality of the human experience, uh, that's going to be uh, uh, um, almost impossible to get that uh, across the line. And just finally, going back to the political point, I think Paul and I have been speaking about this before, and Paul has made the very uh, astute point uh, that when the government was being formed and when getting off its feet, they really took their eye off the ball and didn't think uh, about the virus. They were kind of, they thought they were lucky because the virus was was at a relatively low and benign level. And as Paul has said, it was at that point that they should have began to formulate the plans. And it almost seems too late now. We're beginning to, to, to formulate plans for Dublin and put different levels, people at different parts of the country at different levels, almost at a time uh, when a second wave or, or some kind of a second surge is back, certainly in, in the capital. And it seems like it's all kind of cobbled together at a late date and there isn't a coherence. Uh, there isn't a, a, a proper rationale 
uh, behind it. There is a rationale behind it, but they just it's, it lacks coherence. It seems to, to lack planning and it seems to lack foresight. And I think uh, as the other contributors have been saying, I think messaging has been key. I think the messaging has been very poor. I think it's lacked clarity. I think it's lacked cogency and it's lacked punch. Now, people need to be reassured. Of course, people need to take on the responsibility themselves, but they need reassurance. They need the messages. They, they need to be told what to do. And when they're told what to do, we have found in, in, in society that people tend to be very uh, compliant and will do that with always with a couple of exceptions. I should point out for non-Dublin listeners that when uh, when Paul and Harry refer to the canal, they're referring to the Grand Canal, which is one of two canals in Dublin. The Superior Canal, the Royal Canal, um, is on the is on the north side of the of the city, of course. But Una, thinking about uh, all those young people congregating along whichever canal they might they might congregate along, uh, one of the reasons for that is that it's been uh, pretty nice weather, and we're still kind of in the tail end of summer right now. You wrote a rather bleak column on Monday about what's coming down the tracks, even even if level three only happens for a while in Dublin, that Christmas approaches. And you talk about the social nature of Christmas in Ireland, Christmas in Dublin, um, and how none of that's going to happen this year. And it does beg these enormous questions, particularly Christmas, but winter as a whole. What's it going to be like? Yeah, I mean, I've been thinking about Christmas for a few months now um, just literally out of conversations with my own family about what we're going to do and it is going to be the biggest logistical issue for the country since the pandemic began in terms of the movement of people. I do think that government needs to get ahead of this and actually start talking to people now about it even though nobody really wants to talk about Christmas before Halloween but what's going to happen with the you know up to a million people who usually come home for Christmas from Ireland uh from different countries from around the world, what's going to happen with um, inter-county travel, what's going to happen with people congregating in each other's houses. I, I really think that this is going to sneak up and you can already see that it's going to be another massive news cycle where balls will be dropped and, you know, incoherent messaging may be a, a characteristic of it. I, I know that a lot of things can change in three months. You know, if anything, if this pandemic's thought us anything, it's all about like, you know, best laid plans and all that kind of stuff. But I, I just feel like there does seem to be this cycle where, you know, the, the government is really kind of struggling to come ahead of even a week ahead of things or it just seems very incoherent. And I think that there's a lot of magical thinking going on with regards to Christmas. Like people are still conceptualising that these things can happen outside of a pandemic almost. Um, that's obviously not true. I think there's certain sectors in society who are really getting the gravity of what's got, what are the next year or two years is going to be like. Very obviously the live event sector, which has fallen off a cliff um, and everybody in that is out of work. They understand when you look at these kind of levels, like even at level one, you know, there won't be big gigs, there won't be festivals, there won't be nightclubs and so on. So that's landing more with certain sectors. Um, So I think when we look at something as logistically, uh, you know, rooted in people gathering in enclosed spaces in very, very close proximity to each other, generally with alcohol as well. Uh, you know, we really need to get ahead of this because we also need to give people, I think, some kind of hope or understanding um, about how they can still have a quality of life that is enjoyable within the context. An awful lot of the restrictions seem to be very much fighting the context and not figuring out new ways to thrive within it. Um, 
And with regards to the outdoor thing, you know, certainly in the east of the country this week, the weather's really nice. People are getting out again. I think if you did a straw poll of people living in the capital and asked them if they thought they could uh, gather with more than six people from more than one household outdoors to play football or hang out, you know, drinking uh, by a waterway, whichever one uh, that may be, they would probably say, of course we can because we're outdoors. Um, That's actually against the current, uh, the additional regulations for Dublin. So um, I really worry about winter. I worry about people's mental health. I think that not having social outlets, uh, you know, beyond sitting in a in a pub for for an hour, I think I think it's quite difficult. And I think then when the government almost intervenes with these botched, uh, you know, messages, that really stresses people out. You want the sense that in a crisis, somebody is in charge and they know what they're doing. Yeah, sure. And um, Paul, a last thought from you, just in relation to to what Una is saying there and about the challenge of of the winter months, which I think everybody agrees are more challenging than the summer months in in lots of ways, but also the psychological thing. I mean, listen to Leo Radker yesterday. He was pushing back on an Irish examiner's story that he'd said that there would be a vaccine available to some members of the population or could well be in, I think the newspaper story said, right early in the new year. He said in the first half of next year. I mean, that's the kind of hope that's being held out, isn't it? And hope is important as part of this. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, I was going to I was going to offer reasons to be cheerful because I don't want to be too downbeat. Please do. (laughs) So reasons to be cheerful. Um, This thing will pass. It will go away. It's just how we manage its departure. Right. Um, We don't know the end game, but the vaccine is out there. I actually don't think very much about the vaccine because I'm not going to be first in the queue. And I know there's a lot of commercial uh, imperatives there trying to push things on. And I'd be sceptical about uh, taking the first vaccine that came along. But it will come. And, and an unprecedented amount of science is going on there. Um, we, ha- we also know that local lockdowns have uh, worked quite well. You know, so the Kildare one is the example one. They don't last forever. Now, it is serious for Dublin if it goes up to, to level three on an economic and entertainment front. Um, but it may be that if we uh, if it's affected um, well, that it will only be for a few weeks. So it's a different, uh, it's much different from the open ended situation that we had before. Um, and I do, I just do think that a combination of, you know, we know so much about this virus and we know what works. Um, and we've got to distinguish about uh, between uh, controlled environments and uncontrolled environments. And what's happening in Dublin at the moment is that. Uh, the virus is spreading in uncontrolled environments, often in family households. I'm not saying that we should be controlling those, but what I'm saying is that we have managed to uh, um, exert some form of control over environments such as cinemas um, and other you know, churches and so on. And we can extend that. And we're beginning, and the plan envisages that, we can extend that to live performances and other things that we cherish. So that, you know, there are things um, that are positive. Um, the one thing is that it will get worse before it gets better because the patterns are laid down already, right? So we in the newspapers will be reporting the bad news in Dublin for the next three weeks. What matters is what level of virus is being seeded at the moment. And that's where the improvement might, might come along. And that's what we're hoping for. But it will get bad, worse before it gets better. But it will get better.
On that sensible, and I'm going to take it as an optimistic note, we'll leave it there. Thanks to uh, Paul, to Harry Aduna, and to our producer, Declan Conlon and JJ Vernon, our engineer. If you would like to support this podcast, or indeed all the journalism of the Irish Times, you just have to head over to irishtimes.com slash inside to sign up for unlimited access for the introductory price of one euro. And using that particular address allows us to know how many of our subscribers are also listeners to Inside Politics, which is good for us at the podcast. So that's irishtimes.com slash inside. And if you want to get in touch, we're always delighted to hear from you. Just email us at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. Until the next time, thanks very much indeed for listening.